This is Winter is Here, a podcast where we discuss how we arrived at the global battle between tyranny and democracy, and more importantly, how we can win. I'm your host, Uriel Epstein, Executive Director of the Renew Democracy Initiative. I'm joined today by my co-host, RDI's Chairman Gary Kasparov, and by Bill Crystal. Bill served as Chief of Staff for Vice President Dan Quayle and led the Project for the Republican Future, where he helped shape the strategy that produced the 1994 Republican congressional victory. In 1995, he founded the Weekly Standard, which became known as one of the foremost magazines in conservative intellectual thought. More recently, he is a founder and director of Defending Democracy Together. Welcome, Bill. Thanks, Ariel. Good to be with both of you. So I figured that where we'd start right now is by discussing the connection, if there is one, between Ukraine, Trump's impeachment, and the January 6th hearings of this week and next week. So, Bill, what's your sense? I mean, are these things connected? And if so, what does that connection look like? I'm not sure I could prove the connection, but I have a deep instinct, and maybe Gary can prove it more than I can, that it's all connected. It's not an accident, comrade, as the Soviets used to say. I think that Trump was impeached over Ukraine. I mean, or at least it may be a bit of an accident, but it's a fitting accident. Or if it were in a novel, you would say it's an appropriate way of tying the things two together. The assault by Putin on a peaceful democratic neighbor, Ukraine, that wants to be part of the West, part of the democratic West. The assault here by Trump. Trump was pro-Putin. Putin Putin was pro-Trump. Trump's attempt to subvert the election. I do think it fits together. I'm more convinced of this than I was maybe 20 or 30 years ago, especially during the Cold War. You know, we had various authoritarian allies. We had to put up with them, or we sort of worked with the Chinese against the Soviets and all that. But I really feel now in the 21st century, it's one fight, and it's freedom abroad and freedom at home. Gary, what's your sense? Well, I couldn't agree more. I think there is a connection. Ukraine now is on the front line of the global battle between freedom and tyranny. And I don't think it was an accident that Trump's first impeachment was over Ukraine's second about insurrection in America. So two undemocratic acts. And uh, since, you know, we have Putin involved in Ukraine, first indirectly and now directly, I believe that it's like a writing on a wall. It's a warning from history. We cannot separate battle for democracy at home with battle for democracy worldwide. And those who are trying to separate things, I think making huge mistake because we play into the hands of dictators or would-be dictators because they don't want us to see big picture. So the global overview that puts those who are fighting on the front line against Putin's aggression in Donbass now, and those who are defending democracy in America against insurrectionists that had a plan to overrule free and fair elections. So, Bill, as someone who orchestrated a significant Republican victory in Congress, what we're struggling with now, I think, is a crisis of messaging. You have folks on the street in the U.S. who are more concerned, to some extent understandably, about their grocery bill and their gas bill than they are about these sorts of big ideas of democracy in America, democracy and freedom in Ukraine. How do you think we bring these ideas home for them? I mean, how do we draw that visceral connection where every time I go and fill my car up at the pump and I pay $5 a gallon, I feel that, right? Like that hurts. Whereas, you know, if I'm trying to think about the January 6th hearings or things in Ukraine, those things feel a lot more far off, right? They don't feel anywhere near as close to home as these sorts of kitchen table issues. So how do you bridge that divide? 
I mean, it's not that easy, and that's why democracies are often slow and hesitant and mistaken in reacting to threats at home and abroad. And we can look at the history of the 20s and 30s and many other times as well and see that, in a way, analogous situations. It's a little harder, I think, this year also because it's an off-year election. It's a congressional election. The Republicans, many of them have just been deplorable in their embrace or tolerance or acquiescence and Trump's big lie and the attempt to overturn the election and not telling the truth to the American people. But, you know, the actual voter is voting for some member of Congress who's not going to set American foreign policy, and they want to cast a protest vote against things they don't like that the Biden administration is or isn't doing. So it's not as if Trump is directly on the ballot. If this were a presidential year, I think it would be different. If you were voting for president of the United States, you could say, wait a second, you may not like this part of you know, Biden's foolish economic policies, but get serious about this vote. So, so it's a little harder. Having said that, and there's no one silver bullet. You know, there's no one key that turns the lock, I think. The Republicans have nominated, though, a bunch of candidates for governor, senator, and house, including in a lot of the key swing states for governor and senator, who are really egregious exponents of the big lie, who really are not just kind of quietly not objecting much, but who are just enthusiastic supporters of Trump and of what's worst in Trump. And I think there, this can be made an issue. The governors have a lot to say about whether the election of 2024 is is subverted or not. So I think in states like Michigan and Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, where if Republicans nominate pro-big lie candidates, pro-election subversion candidates, Democrats can make an issue of that, and to some degree in some of those big Senate races as well. So I think Trump is more on the ballot for the governors and Senate races than for the House races. But I think, you know, Democrats have to do a better job in defending their own policies and improving their policies, and there are a million other things they have to do. But I think there is some chance to do this. And and final point, I actually think these hearings may be having a little more effect than everyone thought a week ago when there was such a consensus that, oh, it won't matter at all. Of course, it's not going to change hardcore supporters much. But there are some people in the middle, some people who are kind of going along didn't want to make this their kind of, you know, uh, black and white issue, so to speak. They were, didn't want to really focus on this. Pretty hard to just not see that this is a huge deal and that it should affect your choice of who you want to govern you at the state level or represent you in Congress, as well as your consideration about who you want to be president. So let's say someone comes up to you and asks, hey, Bill, I'm paying $5 a gallon now. My grocery bill just went up 15%. Why should a not insignificant percentage of my taxpayer dollars go off to Ukraine, you know, in support of fighting for freedom there? You know, I support Ukraine. I agree that Russia's war of aggression is bad, but, you know, it doesn't affect me, right? Why should I care about that? Or alternatively, and incidentally, I mean, I often find that these are kind of the same people making both of these arguments, you know, that on the one hand or on the other, you know, why should I care about what's going on in D.C.? I mean, these January 6th hearings, you know, it's a show trial or it's, you know, political posturing, you know, both sides do it, you know, whatever. How do you respond to someone like that? That's a big question also. And I don't have a magic response, but, you know, it's interesting. Think about this. Reagan ran in 1980 for president against Carter. Extremely high interest rates, very bad economic performance in general in the 70s. And what did Reagan run on? Getting the economy going and fighting the Soviet Union, including a big increase in defense spending and a more aggressive posture abroad in terms of those who were fighting the Soviet Union. So it's not mutually exclusive, right? There were people in the Republican Party and stuff who said, oh, well, we've got to do the domestic stuff first. Reagan was able to make the broad case. And I think 
in a practical way, you can tell people, look, whether we send $40 billion to Ukraine or not, whether we send the most advanced weapons or not, has no effect on anything, honestly. The sanctions have some effect short-term on gas prices, but Republicans for now, at least mostly, are sort of in favor of those sanctions, so there's not much of a difference. Who you elect to Congress isn't going to change that. The one thing I think you could really hold the Biden administration responsible for and that they've made a big mistake on They've done a decent job, I think, in terms of the actual mechanics of the diplomacy. Pretty good job on that. Decent job, maybe, on getting the weapons. I mean, I'm pretty worried that they're not moving fast enough or aggressively enough. They haven't adjusted their other policies at all. Mm. I mean, it was obvious six months ago that we needed to really go for energy production for our own sake and to liberate Europe. And this is doable. I mean, there's some price to be paid, maybe on climate, not that much actually, but a little bit. There's you know other things people might not like, but we know how to really increase energy production. And even saying you're going to do it now, even if the stuff doesn't come online until three or six or nine or 12 months later, would start to reduce prices because the market would factor in expectations. And there, and this is generally true of the Biden administration, they're not thinking, what's the word I'm looking for? Holistically, you know? Mm. They're not saying this is a, a war and a conflict in a crisis, and we need to do all kinds of things. Some of them are very direct. We need to get this weapon system faster to Ukraine. But some of them are also have to do with energy policy, trade policy, other things. And there, the administration, either because of democratic interest groups or because they're just not quite mobilized in this way. They're not thinking of it as a huge moment, but just as a pretty bad, you know, it's a serious thing, but they deal with that serious thing, and then they go deal with a bunch of other serious things. They're not thinking of it in a comprehensive enough way, I think. Bill, you just said, oh, they're not aggressive enough. You know, I can't help thinking that 80 years ago, actually 1941, 81 years ago, Roosevelt and Churchill delivered weapons to Stalin within the first few months of war. And that was, uh, let's agree, far more complicated endeavor than now. They had to go around Europe. They had to face German submarines, Luftwaffe, and yet, in three or four months, first contingent of American and British tanks and planes have been delivered to Stalin. And at peak, America supplied Soviet Union at the rate of half a million tons a month. Now, today, they cannot deliver 100 habitsers? And you tell it's not aggressive? It's, um, I think it's an understatement. Okay. And this is one issue. Then another one is, this. I think it's about connection. There were 57 votes in the House against Lendley's bill. Yeah. All came from very unusual political quarter. Typically, you expect, you know, far-left Democrats voting against the package. They didn't. All 57 came from Trumpists. Unless I'm wrong, but, you know, you may correct me, but I think it's... I think that's right. I think that's right. I mean, that's that also shows, I think it's quite a dramatic shift in American politics. So the Republican Party, you know, just it's part of isolationists, uh, and I think that it goes beyond, you know, this war in Ukraine. I think it's overall policy of withdrawing America. Obviously, they had many counterparts on the left. It's Obama and Obama supporters. But so far, they are quiet. And the, and the role of this, the harbingers of America's withdrawal now is in the hands of the Trumpists. And the argument against them is, in my view, is very simple. It's, do you want to test Biden's promise to defend every inch of Article 5 territory? Because if, God forbid, Ukraine is overrun by Putin, he already made it very clear he would not stop there. I'm not saying that. He has been saying that. 
And he already, you know, just make it very clear that he would go after NATO countries. So do we want to put American lives online? Or that means that we will run away and that's the end of NATO and American leadership in the world. I think those are the big questions that are not being raised by this administration because, as you pointed out, it has no global policy. It's very reactive. And your comments about energy policy, they hit bullseye because it's not that they are trying to save the planet because they still look for extra production, but from Saudi Arabia. Yeah. Maybe Saudi oil is just cleaner, Gary. Exactly. What is this? What's the point? You know, if you're talking about a planet, why extra oil extracted in Saudi Arabia in this desert, you know, it's better for the climate that oil extracted in Canada or in the United States. And again, those are the very small, okay, petty political issues to satisfy these domestic crowd. But just in the big picture or the global battle between freedom and tyranny, I think we are running without a game plan, without strategy. And of course, America's inconsistency sends a powerful signal to Europe. So instead of pushing Europeans to act aggressively, America gives more arguments to Macron, Charles, Draghi, and other appeasers in Europe to slow down the process, which is already very slow, of delivering any guns and ammunition to Ukraine. And of course, we still have some favorite issues for Obama's elements in the administration, like Iranian deal. So how can we put this together? Because on one side, you have these ideological issues and and unwillingness to recognize reality. But on the other side, you have the overwhelming influence of Trump and his uh, criminal, selfish agenda. But, you know, in a way, the 57 Republicans, you could flip that a little bit and say, in a way, that's a better situation than FDR faced in 1940 and 41 from the real original America First Committee and some of the Republicans. Now, FDR beat Wendell Wilkie in the 1940 election, and immediately Wilkie, who was a patriot, joined with Roosevelt, and I think Wilkie went to Europe and made it, you know, explained that we're going to have to do all this, and, and they had a sort of bipartisan coalition. There was a lot of attacks on that, of course, from the right wing of the Republican Party. When Stalin was attacked, the left wing was, was fine with, with fighting the war, so <laughs> that was okay on the left. But I do think Biden could do more also in a way to marginalize Trump. I mean, the Trump wing is now at a third of the House Republicans, a little less actually, and left fewer in the Senate on this issue. It's actually a weak issue for Trump, ironically. And therefore, do more to, you know, even symbolic things, bring in some of the senior Republicans who are, with whom he disagrees on everything else, but agrees with on this, you know, send one of them to an envoy perhaps to, I don't know. They just, again, the lack of imagination in taking this issue more seriously than a typical issue and building a broader coalition and making the case here at home. Again, I'm really struck. I think Biden's been, again, adequate in most of what he has said, but really, is there much of a push here the way there was uh, with FDR once, I mean, FDR was very cautious until 1939-40, but then when he realized we were going to have to fight, there was a real attempt to educate the American public and a lot of different spokespeople were used. And you don't see that here much at all, unfortunately. Well, if anything, you see the opposite happening right now, which is what scares me. I mean, for the first, I would say, probably month and a half, two months of the war, there was such widespread agreement among Americans that even people like Tucker Carlson kind of had to take a step back and say, whoa, hold on there. You know, even though I said I support Putin and I support Russia, I don't really support Putin and Russia. But now, of course, he's kind of able to go back to sort of his previous arguments and, you know, be a lot more critical about the money that we're giving to Ukraine. And, you know, they've tried to couch those arguments in financial terms and terms of oversight. 
and try to say, well, look, that money is better spent here, or, you know, we're doing more to protect Ukraine's border than we're doing to protect our own southern border, you know, and arguments of that nature, which are juvenile, but nevertheless resonate, you know, with a certain element of the base. And so what I'm afraid of is, you know, I've started to see messaging from, you know, the Tucker Carlson's of the world or of America kind of taking that right wing back into a Putin-esque direction. But I haven't seen arguments from people who are, pardon me, Bill, more welcome in today's Republican circles than you might be trying to sort of make the other point. And, you know, and I wonder what's missing there. A, do those people exist? If they do exist, are they keeping quiet because they're simply afraid of the political backlash? Are, you know, the Democrats, as you kind of, I think, highlighted not doing enough to reach out to them? Is there something else that we could do to get some of the more reasonable folks? I mean, again, I, I say more reasonable in relative terms, of course, but at least people who might more or less align on this issue to come out and be public about it and try to bring, you know, the American people with them. I mean, I think so. And obviously we're trying to do some of it at RDI and other groups are, you know, trying to do this. But I, I do think, yeah, more imagination and really explaining what's at stake, as Gary says, it's not just about Ukraine. The Ukraine is extremely important in, in and of itself, obviously. And also counteracting some of the bad arguments that are being made, whether it's, you know, Putin's attempt to use nuclear blackmail against us or many of the other ways in which people are finding excuses for appeasement. You know, I can argue it half full or half empty a little bit. In a way, so many of the New York Times, and Kissinger et al. are basically halfway down the road, maybe more, towards appeasement. And it hasn't really changed anything much, I don't think, in the public discourse or public opinion yet. Now, it could be, unfortunately, though, you know, this could be a harbinger, right? This could be something that, if not fought now, increases as gas prices stay high and as people get tired of it and as Russian propaganda perhaps gets a little more effective or Macron and Schultz, you know, do their thing. And But again, we have all these allies in Central and Eastern Europe who've really behaved admirably. It seems to me, and Gary, you guys know both know more about this than I do, but you know, spending a lot of money for their countries, which are not as wealthy as we are and is not as big as we are, whether it's Poland or the Baltic states or others, Czech Republic, which had been run by a Trumpian populace until recently, but which is really seems to behave well. I mean, we should be holding them up, elevating them more. Biden should be meeting with them and talking with them on the phone all the time. You know, there are plenty of people in America who admire those countries and who know people from those countries, as with Zelensky himself, of course. We have a lot of good people sort of... <laughs> on our side, so to speak, or we're on their side, maybe. And there's a lot more that could be done, I think, to bring that home. So, Gary, this is to you. You know, Bill, you mentioned Poland. And, you know, Poland is such an interesting case, right? Because Poland has its own very significant struggles with democracy, with the rise of the Law and Justice Party, and the things that they've been doing in order to try to promote some elements of authoritarianism and, and things like that, which our RDI colleague, Ann Applebaum, has done a very good job of highlighting. But of course, over the last three months, they've been arguably one of the single most prominent, not just voices in defense of Ukraine, but I mean, they've been acting. I mean, they've taken in millions of Ukrainian refugees and they've given just an incredible sum of money and military hardware and other things in defense of Ukraine. So, Gary, I wonder, what do you think is at play here? Number one, do you think that the ruling party in Poland, that this might actually be shifting their political position towards a more kind of classically liberal point of view? Or do you think that this is kind of just like a ceasefire on the democracy questions in Poland while they focus on the greater threat, which is Putin? Look, I think Poland is equally divided. So it's almost 50-50 split. And uh, most of the big cities controlled by the opposition, 
by the rural areas, they vote Law and Justice Party. But I was always very, very cautious by putting Poland next to Hungary. Yes, I heard from our Polish friends from the liberal side that, you know, the Poland may march in that direction. But again, when people start, you know, throwing everything together, oh, Poland, Hungary, Turkey, say, wait, 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 wait. This is just, you know, let's not, you know, bring together Poland and Hungary and also Hungary and then Turkey. But we see this very dangerous trends. And naturally, they are not separated from what we're seeing in this country. So I think that we can easily, you know, compare the threat to democracy in, in Hungary with Trump. So if Trump, given the, another chance, if he could have won the second term, we might be moving into the direction of Hungary, actually, much faster than Poland. Because even now we see that Trump is trying to spread a big lie. And imagine, you know, Trump in power for eight years. So and with more of his people, you know, taking control of the key institutions. And God knows, you know, what would be happening in 2024. We still don't know what will be happening in 2024. So now, as for Poland, it's there's certain things that just that transcend the political divide. It's a genetic memory. The Poles have been suffering from aggressions, both from the West, German hands, but also Russians. And Russians' experience is much fresher. And now they saw it's coming. And I think the country is united. So I spoke at a conference in Katowice a couple of weeks ago. That's a very liberal audience. And yeah, I got two standing ovations. They're fully behind the efforts of the Polish government. So you may call it a ceasefire. Hopefully it may, you know, bring the nation together. Because as of now, it's not about, you know, the difference on abortion or other issues. It's about national survival. You have 2.5 to 3 million refugees. Many of them live in Polish families. You have many Ukrainian kids now integrated in Polish classes. See, Poland, don't forget, Poland had a very, very difficult history with Ukraine. It's like France, Germany. And now this is a process of reconciliation. So now they fight together because they know the enemy. And I think it's overall the impact of this war will play a positive role in preserving Polish democracy. Mm. And also, you know, you can see the difference. Hungary is just, you know, trying to squeeze European Union for any benefits, for cash, for all the preferences, while offering no support to fight Putin. So Orban is more like Trump. He's in Putin's camp. He cannot do much to help Putin, but he's definitely is trying to do whatever is in his power to slow down European sanctions and other measures to confront Putin's aggression. You know, I'm, I'm no expert on Poland, but I very much have the instinct that, that Gary's right and that in these last few months have strengthened the liberal, let's call them, forces in Poland, maybe indirectly and maybe only gradually. I'm not saying that in a party political way that one party is going to get more votes the next election, but you take in two, three million refugees you feel a responsibility to do that. You do a good job, it looks like, of assimilating them. There are obviously huge overlaps with Poles and Ukraines already in terms of families and stuff. But it's a little harder than to run some nativist, you know, to be a nativist political party. It's a little harder to pretend that what happens next door doesn't matter to you. It's a little harder to pretend that Putin's a fine fellow when, when people show up and talk about what they saw with their own eyes in Ukraine before they fled or what they've heard from family members who stayed. So or what they're seeing on the news, obviously, every day. So I think... People forget this in the Cold War. People, sophisticated students, I think, of the civil rights movement in the U.S. have always been struck. When did the civil rights movement take off? When did it really win? It won at the height of the Cold War. And there's a kind of conventional account that, gee, if you're in a kind of tough Cold War like that, it's bad for liberalism at home. It was the national security, state, you know, all this stuff, kind of with, with the anti-war 
quote libertarians who are not really libertarian say. But it's the opposite, actually, partly because of all the propaganda and the Soviets used to use the civil rights stuff against the U.S., it was a little easier at home for liberals, for John Kennedy or Hubert Humphrey or the kind of liberal anti-communist to say, look, we, I mean, we should do it for its own sake, obviously. It's a stain on America. But also, we are in a global battle for freedom. We can't be you know, discriminating against a huge number of our own citizens and not fixing this situation. It's not an accident that Kennedy and Humphrey and Jackson were you know, strong anti-communists and also strongly for civil rights at home. So I think maybe we're seeing a little bit of, you know, th- those two can go together and, and do sometimes go together. Since we talk about history and about the parallels and you said coincidences, can we look in at, at this big picture from historical perspectives? Because if we go back to the World War II and the, and the nations that fought fascism, of course, its first one was Great Britain that stood alone against Hitler and Stalin, who was Hitler's uh, ally and the entire Europe that was subdued. Poland, that never ceased to resist. So they, they kept, you know, fighting through his guerrilla war, and you know, many Polish fighters played a crucial role in battle for Britain. We know that. Baltic nations, they even at the end of the World War II, they continued their resistance, trying to preserve what was left, you know, of their national honor. They lost independence, but, but you had, especially in Lithuania, I think it's, they called the Forest Brothers. That's the, this is the guerrilla movement there that I think resisted until early 1950s. Ukrainian resistance in the Western Ukraine that fought Bolsheviks until 1953 at least. And now we look at this coalition. And what was on the other side? You know, what countries, you know, that, that were made a core of the fascist coalition and their supporters? Germany, Italy, Hungary, and France that served as a recreation place for German army. Is it just he? A coincidence that we see now very much, you know, the same alignment. <laughs> that's a that's a very depressing thought. But Bill, when you mentioned how the Soviets used the racism in the U.S. for Soviet propaganda to demonstrate the superiority of communism, it actually reminds me of a story my mom shared with me, which was the reason that she moved to Israel and she went to Israel rather than the U.S. Not because she was some great Zionist but purely because Soviet propaganda was so strong that she thought that American anti-Semitism was worse than Russian anti-Semitism, right? She thought the Jews here had it even worse. So anyway, it's interesting how dictators, I would say, kind of use the weaknesses of the free world against them, right? I mean, this idea of, well, we're all the same. We're all equally bad. We're all equally corrupt. We're all equally unfree. And therefore you, meaning you know, my people, have no right to protest against me. You know, you have no right to expect better because even the U.S. is no better than we are. Yeah, and I mean, Gary's written a lot about this, actually, and many great dissidents. Havel was very interested in this phenomenon, and it goes back before even the extent to which they don't have to really persuade people of their truth. Most people don't believe, you know, their propaganda. What they need to do is confuse everyone, make it unclear whether there is any objective truth, what does Bannon call it? Filling the air with bullshit. Flood the zone with shit. <laughs> yeah, but it's very, you know, he studied that stuff. He read the early fascists in the 1920s and the 10s and 20s and 30s. And he also probably is, you know, is familiar with, with, with what's the Cold War era. And I think that's a very important point, though, the degree. And this is also what Trump benefits from so much. And so it's not that they're true believers in all the stuff that Trump says. 
And it strengthens them. Their arguments aren't good. You can't disprove their arguments. It's not a chess match where you can show them that was a very stupid move because you're about to lose your, you know, lose your rook. I mean, it's all sort of bullshit. It's all, they change the arguments every day, every week. So you disprove one, they're on to the next. I thought it was interesting at the hearing, one of the lawyers was saying, we told Trump this particular claim about voter fraud wasn't true. Trump didn't bother to argue. He just went to the next claim. That's in a way very psychologically and politically revealing. And it, I've always thought this is among certain kinds of liberals here and, you know, intellectuals, you might say academics, the incoherence of Trumpism, the self-contradictory character of it at times, the kind of kookiness of it there. It's Christian America, but also I've got three wives and, girl, you know, girlfriends and, you know, we're, we're, we lie all the time. That's not a weakness, though, ultimately. I mean, maybe in some ways it could be, but in some ways, that's a strength of Trumpism, or it's a feature of Trumpism and of fascism. I, I recently reread, I hadn't read this essay in 25 years. I'm not sure I even really registered when it came out by Umberto Eco, the, you know, no longer. 14 characteristics, yes? Yes, the Ur fascism. Uh, 14 it's a brilliant, brilliant short essay. It's, it's like 12 pages long. Everyone should read it. You can get it free online. The New York Review of Books wants you to pay for it, but if you just, there's another website that just seems to have reproduced it. And it's Julian, and, and he stresses this point, is the incoherence and almost self-contradictory protein, is the word he uses, character of, of the arguments of fascism that in a way make it even stronger. I talked about rising fascism in Russia, I think in 2007 and 2008, I had an article in Russian, and I quoted this article. Saying, oh, really? Look, wow. Start, start counting, and we are getting so close. Yeah. Because this, is, this is like, you know, it's a textbook. Yeah. So because you have all the components yeah. And the, the, I said that the, the, what was missing is a foreign aggression. And I said it would come. And now everyone's asking if you have a crystal ball. We just read a few books, huh, Bill? <laughs> you know, Bill, we've talked about how the impacts of this war might, I would say somewhat ironically, perhaps tragically, have a salutary, a positive effect on Polish society, right? Where, you know, it's hard to be nativist when you have millions of Ukrainians coming in and you can see that they're, you know, no different from you. And, and they're, you know, quite pleasant people to be around and all of that. Obviously, the U.S. is much further away from the front lines, right? We're an ocean apart. But do you think there's a chance that this conflict could have a positive effect on our own politics, you know, given that the curtain on I mean, for anyone who tried to delude themselves as to Putin's intentions or whatever, you know, at this point, I think, you know, the only people who truly believe that he is a decent guy are those who are too far gone, really, for us to bring back in. So, you know, for everyone else, I mean, do you think there's a chance that this has a positive impact here? Or are we just too far removed? I mean, I hope it does. And I think it has somewhat. I actually think in the Republican Party, Trump was actually pretty backed off pretty quickly from the embrace of Putin when the war began. He saw, I think, that this was not quite where he wanted to be. And he hasn't been that outspoken, even on the isolationist or anti-aid to Ukraine side. But he's, in this way, Trump has a certain kind of cunning, and he's a little cautious about going too far in a direction that he thinks might not work out for him politically. So, yeah, I, I, now again, I think a lot has to be done to talk to decent Republicans around the country, local maybe, and maybe it's easier to do it at the local level than in Washington where they're so, you know, wrapped up in the partisan fight against Democrats and Biden. And again, that was a huge effort to do that in 1940-41. I mean, that was impressive how much that was done on a bipartisan basis, the Chamber of Commerce and the labor unions, which were very powerful then, not so much now. Uh, again, I think more could be done there, and I'm not sure who could organize that. I mean, we're doing a little bit, obviously, at RDI, but it's hard. I mean, it's a big country, and it's got a lot of other things going on. 
but really important to get people to see how central this is to the future. I mean, it's not just Ukraine. It's not just neighboring countries in Europe. It's everything. If a nuclear-armed dictator can invade a neighbor and pay no consequences, and a big neighbor, and one that we have obligations to because of the Bucharest Agreement and so forth, and that's bordering NATO and, and the EU, I mean, all bets are off. First of all, nuclear proliferation, which is one of the success stories mostly of the West in the last 70 years or so, and, and keeping it under control. Not too many countries have gotten nuclear weapons. That's gone. I mean, other countries are just going to say, well, the biggest mistake Ukraine made, giving up the nukes in 94. We're going to go get some ourselves, whether you're Japan or South Korea or Saudi Arabia or God knows who. And maybe each of these countries, at least the first couple are okay. You know, they're okay countries, they're democracies and all, but who knows, right? I mean, you don't want that situation. So I just think in so many ways, the world gets so much more dangerous. And I think there are ways to bring that home. But again, no one is making this bigger picture case in the way that was done in 1441. I remember re reading something a few months ago. I was very There's that famous, uh, I think it's called the Atlantic Charter. I'm not going to blank exactly when it was. The Roosevelt and Churchill signed on the destroyer in the... Uh, in 1941. It was 41. This was in 41. This is before we were in the war. And it already had a vision of why it was important to win, what could be done afterwards to prevent this from happening again. We didn't follow through on all that in 1945. That's another question. But I mean, at least there was an understanding that we have to think broadly and in a long-term way about this, not just, gee, we have to, you know, right now make sure this doesn't happen here or this doesn't happen there. And again, there, I do think the administration just doesn't seem to be, you know, thinking that way. The things, the things might, might be even worse because it's not just, you know, the nuclear power invades a neighboring country. It's also about war crimes yeah, on an industrial yeah. scale. It's about genocide. Yeah. You have many, many, many butchers there. And the response from the free world, no, it was not a yawn. It was an outrage. But nothing compared to George Floyd demonstrations in America. I mean, we're talking about genocide. And it's being committed, you know, in purpose. It was a policy. It was a strategy. And Biden now is heading for Saudi Arabia. Now, what message is sending to Putin? Because MBS is also a criminal. He's a butcher. And uh, basically now, okay, it's whatever you do, yeah, there's a geopolitical agenda that could beat, could, could trump any of your crimes. Uh, and if you can talk to MBS, maybe they'll talk to me as well. Let me just bring that back to the U.S. if I could on the hearings, because I think it's such an important point. People do need to be held accountable. And if dictators think they're not held accountable for aggression and dictatorship at home, for that matter, as you know, it's a terrible signal. I remember one reason in 1991, I was so unhappy when I was in the first Bush administration that we didn't go get rid of Saddam after winning the war so quickly. It's not because I, you know, it was partly just justice to get rid of, but partly because I thought if you leave him there, the signal is you'll pay some price if you invade a neighboring country. You'll lose some of your army. You'll, you'll get beaten by us, which is good, but you will still be in power. And you can try again in 10 years. And it's the same message to MBS and it's the same message to Putin. And I think it's the same message here at home. And, you know, I was thinking about Watergate. It's obviously I was talking about it recently. It's the anniversary of the break-in, 50th anniversary and so forth. And, and of course, with the hearings. But, you know, what was very important in Watergate? A lot of people involved in Watergate were punished. A lot of people, the White House chief of staff, the White House deputy chief of staff, the attorney general of the United States, they went to jail. Nixon himself forced from office. That's what people focus on. But they forget that's really important. You need to have people think when they're serving in government next time, I can't do this, not just because, gee, I don't believe it's quite right. or I, have, I, I could really 
this could be the end of my career, right? And that's a very mild version, you might say, of what Putin's doing and war crimes and so forth. But I think the accountability part of it is so important, both abroad and at home. And there we don't have much. People who served in very disreputable ways in the Trump administration are giving speeches, they're making a lot of money on various, on TV. Some of them are, on, are even on reputable TV networks, let alone on Newsmax and all of that. They have positions at Harvard. It was not a bad career decision, it turns out, yet, to have signed on to Trump. Maybe for a few people who care about a certain kind of respectability, but an awful lot of people are doing well. And some of that you can't stop. It's a free country. If some idiotic billionaire wants to pay someone for, you know, it's a free country in a way. But, but getting some of these people held responsible for the criminal conspiracies they were involved in. I think that's important too. Yeah, and it needs to happen. It needs to happen also in a time-effective way, right? I mean, it's like, you know, you're a kid, you touch a hot stove, you're sure as hell not going to touch that stove again. And here, you know, we have all these hot stoves that everybody's touching and there's no impact. There's no result. It's something that I think is, is absolutely key. And it's one of the things that through our DI, we you know we're trying to talk about with front lines of freedom by leveraging the voices of dissidents to try to remind Americans of, look, you know, accountability matters here. But I want to bring this back a little bit to, Gary, what you said about us now turning to Saudi Arabia. The Atlantic, right, not exactly a big, you know, conservative mouthpiece, but the Atlantic has come out with a big article defending the move and saying that Biden essentially had no choice but to go to MBS and that, you know, there was no alternative given the geopolitical reality of the situation. He had to sacrifice some of his ethical beliefs. And so I wonder, number one, do you agree with that? And number two, what is the alternative, right? Is there an alternative to us having essentially to go and make nice with a butcher? I don't buy this argument. I don't think we can compromise on moral issues. It's like, you know, debating now, so uh, the Ukrainian war for me, it's, you know, there's good and evil. Anyone who is now coming up with arguments to, not to support, but to exonerate Putin or just to find an excuse for his aggression, I mean, that's it. I'm not here to debate it. So what do you mean no alternative for visiting Saudi Arabia? America has plenty of oil. Canada has plenty of oil. So it's, again, it's not about making big decisions. This is not 1941 supporting Stalin because Hitler was too dangerous. They were not facing the same threat. We're not forced to go to all these dictators, those petty dictators who literally butchered their political opponents. It's unwillingness to sacrifice petty political agenda. Like, you know, this is the climate and domestic issues and some other, you know, issues so dear to the radical part of the Biden's party and in exchange making huge sacrifices. And that's somehow it's America first in its uh, probably far left version. So we have to do everything to protect us, whether it's our environment, whether it's our rights, whether it's our freedom. But we don't care about people in Africa, in Europe, in Asia, in Latin America. So whatever Chavez or now Maduro, they, they have been doing to people in Venezuela, big deal. So whatever Putin is doing in Ukraine, okay, that's too far away. Genocide in Rwanda ages ago, but in, in Xinjiang, that's something that we can deal with or we can live with. And I strongly reject this kind of political behavior. And I think Biden's visit to Saudi Arabia is a huge concession to, not to MBS, to every dictator, because that's exactly, that's a message. So as long as you become politically valuable, they'll give everything to you. Now we could see Erdogan is a big winner of this war because he plays on every table and he knows that he's indispensable. But at least I understand that we have probably no choice now 
because Erdogan can do tons of damage to Ukraine. And that's why you can offer him some concessions. Still, I would not go as far as giving him veto right over Sweden and Finland. But MBS doesn't have the same kind of power. He doesn't control the straits in Black Sea, so to let Russian troops in or not. So he has oil. We do have oil as well. And I think the political earthquake that will follow Biden's visit to Saudi Arabia, it's huge. And it's, again, it's, 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 it's going, you know, just in the same perimeter and making, you know, the same mistakes. We, we want Iranian deal. We don't want Iranian deal. We want to do with Saudi Arabia. Why not simply imposing our political values there? And if, again, we definitely may, we may not win every battle, but at least, you know, we could look in the mirror and look in the eyes of people, billions of people around the world saying, okay, we stood our ground and we never betrayed your interest. You know, I just add one point to that, which is a, a more minor point, but very consistent with that, which is maybe privately, if you know, there were conversations between the assistant secretary of state and someone representing the Saudis. And they said, look, we'll increase the oil if you'll, I don't even know what they would want at this point, but we will you know, do it. I, I could maybe say, okay, if that's a private, you know, it, it, we're in a war, it would be useful. But the visit is a big deal. Maybe I'm more moved by this because I worked in the White House, but it's a, the American president doesn't go everywhere. He doesn't just take trips randomly. He is going there. He's going to be greeted there by MBS. That is a much worse than the normal, you know, backdoor, a little bit of backroom deals. Maybe as you say with Turkey, you know, who knows what we're saying to them privately and what trade-offs should be we're making to get them to relax the opposition to Sweden and Finland. I'm not even defending all that. I'm just saying that's a more normal sort of politics at the margin. I hadn't really focused on this, and of course, just announced, I guess, yesterday, but for sure, the trip to Saudi Arabia. But I think Gary's right. This will be a big moment and a bad moment, a really bad moment uh, for the U.S. And bad, not just in terms of Saudi Arabia, but in terms of the signal it sends everywhere. So, Bill, what do you think is happening? I mean, you've spent time in the White House. You've been a part of these types of conversations, deciding where the president goes. What do you think is happening among President Biden's advisors and whoever else, you know, has influence over him? Because I'm fairly convinced that this is not something he wants to do. I mean, he's going there through gritted teeth. I mean, he's the candidate who on the campaign trail said that he would make Saudi Arabia a pariah. Well, needless to say, a state visit by a president isn't exactly making Saudi a pariah. So what's the logic here? Is it that, you know, Saudi can increase oil production immediately and therefore relieve the pressure at the pump? Is that basically, is it like a purely transactional thing or is there something else at play? No, I think that. I mean, just political people are telling him gas prices are killing us. Some of his economists may be telling him, and I can't judge this, that even just an announcement by the Saudis of an extra billion dollars, you know, billion gallons over there, you know, a week or a day would be, you know, would relieve pressure. And he's putting those together. You know, I don't think the left is pushing for this. I've actually seen pretty left-wing members of Congress, senators and so forth, but who are pro-human rights to some degree at least, criticizing this. It's not like MBS is a big cheering section, you know, among the Democrats. I mean, so this isn't a case where it's the more normal case, you might say, that we're familiar with in the last 30, 40 years of a kind of left-wing desire to appease. It's a little bit of right-wing desire to appease, obviously. But, you know, I mean, it's it's kind of amazing, right? Who, who do the Saudis love the most? Who did they give a $2 billion deal to just the last few months? Jared Kushner, right? So Biden is rewarding a regime that murdered, obviously, Khashoggi and his terrible regime at home and has done nothing to make up for that, and that also has helped Trump here in the U.S. 
But I, I come back to the core moral point that Gary really made, a political point. It's just the symbolism of this is going to be bad. I, you know, you say Biden doesn't want to do it, but presidents get suckered into this kind of diploma. You know, you can be, you can outmaneuver everyone. You can be really clever. You know, you might, you said this on the campaign trail, but now that you're in office, you really need to kind of, you know, be real politique and understand that this, and there is a pretty big Saudi lobby here and a kind of old fashioned, you might say, pro-Arab, you know, state lobby. So maybe they're having some effect too, but it isn't kind of the normal left-wing appeasement actually in this case, you know? But Bill, you know, you said the consequences, you know, could be dramatic. Let's, you know, not forget, we had similar uh, situation with Putin. Biden yes. called him murderer. And then, you know, he played, uh, I mean, he hasn't played back his accusations, but his entourage did. And it ended up with Biden having three summits with Putin, one in person and two online, three meetings. And the outcome, war in Ukraine. Yeah. So the same argument, oh, we'll meet, I'll look in his eyes, we'll, we'll send a message. Okay, you know, they send a message. And Putin tracks his soul and said, okay. You know, the Biden meeting with Putin from 2021 as president is not, you know, and that's not worth dwelling on now, perhaps, but it was not a high water, not a good point, and it probably backfired, if anything. It wasn't just neutral. It really emboldened Putin, probably, as did Afghanistan, incidentally. So much as I, you know, want to be for Biden and, and hope he does well and does better and so forth, it's not as if he's shown signs of a kind of, gee, we can't overreach. We've got to be, you know, we can't fight more than one place at one time, so let's get out of Afghanistan. That also, I think, incidentally, Putin might have done the whole thing anyway, obviously, but how could that not embolden Putin? Putin looks at Biden in 2021, comes in, but Putin's probably a little worried. He's not Trump. Biden ran against him, you know, et cetera. Looks at the summit with himself, with Putin, looks at Afghanistan, thinks, geez, I don't know. I'm not sure this guy can, is really going to, I'm sure he's a little surprised that Biden has been, in a way, as strong as he has been. But yeah, I, I worry a lot about this visit to MBS. I think that America can't afford now amoral foreign policy yeah. because again it's not just the rest of the world will be paying the price but also it will go boomerang yeah because it you know somehow it emboldens those in america who are just saying okay big deal so is this yes i mean let's you know let's move on you know january 6 all these things you know it's not it's not that important so let's let's go to business so before we wrap up here bill assuming the republicans take congress in november what do you think we should be expecting with respect to policy relating to Ukraine, any kind of follow-up relating to the January 6th hearings, and so forth? I personally think they won't take the Senate. I mean, right now, actually, I think they've nominated such bad candidates. And that, and I also think people are overdoing a little bit how badly the Democrats are doing if you look at the polls and state by state as opposed to the Biden's popularity. So I think they might just lose the House uh, and maybe lose it you know, by 10, 15 seats, not by 40 uh, which would be better probably for the country. You know, Congress has limits on what they can do in terms of policy. The president can veto. The president's party still will have clout. It makes a pretty big difference who, if they control the Senate, I'd say. I mean, you can lose the House, and then you have a lot of harassment and hearings. But if you control the Senate, you can get your appointees through, and you can, you know, get to prevail probably on key things. I, I think the good news is not too many Republicans are running explicitly as kind of anti-aid to Ukraine candidates, maybe Vance in Ohio, maybe if Masters wins in Arizona, but I, don't, I doubt if he will. So I don't quite know what the direct effects will be. Yeah, so I, I think it's hard to predict these things. And often we have a history here, of course, of the 
the party wins the off-year election and then the president comes back or the president's party comes back and wins. My view, and this is just blue skies, they say, Biden should not be the Democratic nominee in 2024. We need generational change. We need a different type of person, whether it's a governor or non-politician or a younger member of Congress who's maybe served in the military or has a different kind of background on the Democratic side. And so I don't quite know whether a defeat, a bad showing in 2022, would that increase the pressure on Biden to say he's not going to run in 2024? He's a stubborn man. Would he want to show that he can be vindicated? I think that's a pretty, his numbers are pretty bad. I mean, it's interesting. You know, I just looked at the numbers this morning. Uh, Biden's like approval is now below 40 in the average, which is pretty low. I mean, Trump's only got to like 38, I think, at its lowest. The Democrats are down two and a half points in the generic congressional ballot. So X number of voters, you know, a non-trivial number, right? 5%, 6%, I can't do the math in my head, probably, you know, if Biden's minus 15 and the Republicans are minus two, six, five, six, seven percent of voters are saying, for now, I don't approve of Biden, but I'm willing to vote for a Democrat for Congress. I think that's a verdict on Trump and on the Republican Party and on the fact that a fair number of Democratic candidates are reasonably attractive, actually, running for some of these seats. Uh, very important that, frankly, the Democrats, you know, Biden's president, so we should wish him well, but the Democrats should not let Biden drag them down politically for the next three years. Well, with that, thank you, Bill. Thank you, Gary. And thank you all for listening to this episode of Winter is Here, brought to you by the Renew Democracy Initiative and Substack. I'm your host, Uriel Epstein. At RDI, we are committed to pulling American democracy back from the brink and restoring its place as a global beacon for freedom. If you'd like to support the show, please subscribe for free in your podcast player at renewdemocracy.substack.com or at rdi.org and share the episode with a friend. Thank you.